0: We've made it to the final week of this series we're calling Staying in Love. And we're not talking about falling in love, because as we've said numerous times in this series, falling in love is the easiest thing in the world to do. Many of us in the room have even fallen in love completely by accident. We never meant to. Uh, Back when I was in high school, I just wanted to be in a relationship. Like, that's just kind of my personality. Like, I wasn't the date-around kind of guy. At least that wasn't what I was trying to do, I should say. I didn't want to date around, and but I wanted to be in a relationship. And so consequently, I fell in love with all kinds of people. Anytime I had a friend who was a girl, I thought, hey, let's just take that space out. You can, instead of a girl who's my friend, you can just be my girlfriend all the time. And so my relationships like that very rarely worked out, and so I consequently ended up being somebody who dated around a lot, but it was simply because I wanted to date, I wanted a relationship and I fell in love so incredibly easily. It doesn't take anything more than a pulse to fall in love, and so there's no need to spend a whole sermon series talking about it. But staying in love is a whole different ball game. It's a whole different thing. It's so much more difficult than falling in love. You can fall in love by accident, you cannot stay in love by accident. That is not how it works. Love, true love, requires work. And as we're going to see today, some of the hardest work you'll ever do will be to love. Someone. Um, and I think one thing that makes the work of staying in love so hard is because you have to fight against what your emotions are telling you to do oftentimes. Uh, See, so staying or falling in love, that's just basically following your emotions. Your emotions are saying, oh, they're so sweet, they're so kind, they're so dreamy, I just want to be around them. And so falling in love is just you chasing those emotional feelings. Staying in love will require you to do the opposite of what your emotions are telling you to do. Your emotions will tell you to yell. Your emotions will tell you to gripe, your emotions will tell you to nag, your emotions will tell you to leave, your emotions will tell you that you deserve better, your emotions will say, return the hateful thing they said at you with more hurtful stuff back at them. But as we saw in week one of this series, true love, true love, the kind of love that we all want someone to show us, true love has to be about us doing more than what our emotions are telling us to do. It's more than that. And so to conclude this series, I want us to go to one of the most overused passages in the Bible. It's read at just about every wedding. I read it at a lot of my weddings. Um, It's it's taken out of context a lot, but that's okay. Um, It's chapter 13 of the 1 Corinthians, this 1 Corinthian letter that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth, Greece. 1 Corinthians 13. What's this chapter called? Anybody? The love chapter. You gotta add a little like love chapter because right? that's what people think. 1 Corinthians 13. Ooh, we're talking about love, okay? Well, here's the thing about 1 Corinthians 13. If you just read it, man, you, if you just read it, don't think too much about it, don't really do any digging into what it's telling you. If you just straight up read it, man, it sounds all ooey gooey and romantic. It sounds like the best description of love ever. But if you do any digging at all, it really starts to kill that whole lovey-dovey thing it's got going on. And there's a couple reasons for for that, why digging into this really kills the the warm and fuzzies and and all that. It's because, one, this verse isn't primarily talking about romantic love. You see, this verse is actually speaking to how Christians should care and love for other people. It's about how, it's just the general type of love that Christians should show the people in their lives that they are close to and choosing to love. And so that kind of takes a little bit of the romance out of it. But here's the thing. If you're called to love everybody this way as a Christian, how much more should you love the person that you stood up in front of God, friends, family, and everybody and pledged your life to them? So I think this does have a very romantic application to it, but it's not just that. And one thing I've tried to do throughout this series is try to make this love stuff applicable to you, even if you're not in a romantic relationship. Because a lot of the passages, they're just that. They're just talking about how Christians are supposed to love people. It's not specifically romantic love. Now the other reason why digging into this passage kills the whole romantic vibe that we like to read into this is because the aspects of love that it describes are not easy. I mean, it gives you like the most difficult descriptions of love. And the reason why we, we tend to think that that's beautiful when we read over them is because we know that love's supposed to be solid. We know it's supposed to be made out of something that's meaningful. It's got to be more than you know what's written on candy hearts and fluffy Valentine's Day cards. We know instinctively we want the, the kind of love we want shown to us is something that's meaningful and solid and it stands up under difficult days and all of that. And so 1 Corinthians 13 does that. So we're going to read a few verses, starting in verse 4, we'll read down through verse 7, but we're going to spend all of our time on verse 7 today after we get uh, through reading it, because verse 7 shows you that loving someone might be the hardest thing you'll ever do. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant It is or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love, or it it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So verse 7 has four descriptions of what it means to truly, like all in, love somebody. And... Verse 7 is the hardest of all of it. See, the other other stuff you can kind of get on board with. Yeah, I don't need to be, you know, pushy, and I I shouldn't have my way all the time, and I shouldn't be, you know, irritable. I should be patient. We can kind of get on board with the first several verses. But verse 7, when you really understand what it means, it almost makes you want to say, I think it'd be easier if I just never loved anybody. It's really incredibly difficult stuff. And the reason why verse 7 is difficult is because it starts to speak into what I'm going to call the gap. The gap that will exist in every relationship, romantic or otherwise, but it will especially show up in romantic relationships. And here's what the gap is. The gap is when there's a difference between how you expected your spouse, partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, to behave, and how they actually behaved. How you thought this whole show was going to go. And how it really went. There's a gap between those two. You see, the dream is that they always go together. I always got what I expected. I expected he'd bring me flowers every day. And by golly, he brought me flowers every day. I expected him to never miss our anniversary. And he never missed our anniversary. But most of the time, there is a gap between what you expected them to do and what they actually did. And the gap can be small stuff, okay? But the gap can be really, really big, painful stuff as well. Let's just start with small. Um, you said you'd be home at 4. You promised me that you weren't going to work late today. You weren't going to get caught up. You promised me you'd be home at 4. I told you how important it was for us to get to that thing. You said you'd be home at 4, and it's 4.30, and I haven't heard anything out of you. Come on. Like, wh- what's the deal? There's a gap between what you expected and what you got. You said you'd start doing a few more chores, and here I am still taking out the trash. I thought you said you were going to help more around here. What's the deal? Why am I still the one taking out the trash? Okay. Um, and then it can get bigger and bigger. Uh, you said you'd never talk to me like that again. You said you'd never say things like that to me. You said that as, as your wife, that I meant more to you than to talk to me like, like some vile, like you just beat me into the ground with your words. You said you'd never talk to me that way again, and here you, here, here you did. Or you just said you'd never drink anymore. You said you were done drinking, and yet here you are, smell it all over you. you see the gap can be really big, really very sizable. And your expectations for what your relationship should be like, by the way, that's before we get any farther, let's talk about real quick about where your expectations come from, because they can come from everywhere. Sometimes your expectations are just how you guys talked before you got married. We just had this great picture we painted of marriage, and we were, everybody loved everybody, and I did things, and you did some things, and we just loved each other and snuggled on the couch, and it was great. That's what we talked about. That's the picture I got from our conversations, and then that didn't really happen. Um, maybe you actually expected some of the stuff that was said on your wedding day in your wedding vows. You actually thought some of those vows might actually Hold up. You thought you might actually keep some of those when you got married together. Or maybe you got your expectations for what your married life, your relationship life would be like from your mom and dad. Maybe you just watched mom and dad do their thing, live their life, have their relationship together, and you just thought, that's what married couples do. So, you know, when we get married, that's what we're going to do. And it's just not playing out that way. But the expectations, regardless of what they are, when you don't have, when your spouse doesn't live up to your expectations, there's, there's a gap. There's a difference, a, a hole, a, a, a place of strong emotion when how uh, you feel with the unmet promises. And the thing that makes the gap so hard to talk about, and the thing that makes these uh, commands we're going to look at in just a few moments, the thing that makes them so tough is because the gap is full of hurt feelings and disappointment. Hurt feelings and dis- disappointment. You said you would. I thought you'd Never. I never thought I'd be the person on the receiving end of stuff like that. It, it's full of heartache and hurt feelings. And, and honestly, it's so hard to speak into that. And, and I I'm I'm guarantee you, every one of these things I'm going to tell you today, except maybe the first one, you're going to want to push back on and you wanna, you're going to want to say, I'm not doing that. I can't do that. That's, that doesn't make any sense. I'm too hurt to act that way, to respond that way. But what these four commands... Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Those four commands show you what love requires you to do when there's a gap. So let's just go through them in order. Love bears all things. Now, um, to kind of get what this is talking about a little bit, you got to get the idea that uh, in, the, in the Greek word that this was originally written in, the word bears is actually the word for roof. So that seems really silly. The love roofs all things, you know. That, you don't think of your marriage as like a roof. You know, if you're going to write a nice love poem to leave to your sweetie on, there, on your anniversary, our love is like a roof. Like, that's not the place you'd start. That's not very romantic. It's kind of bad poetry for one. You think, that's, that's it, great. I mean, maybe if your guy's like a roofer, and you know that, that he really passionate about roofing. Maybe that conveys some of that passion, but for the most part, no. Love bears all things. Well, there's a couple ideas of, of, the, of the idea of a roof. One is the roof holds up under strain. So let's say they didn't get a lot of snow in the Middle East, but let me bring it to uh, our idea. Uh, every now and then we get, you know, six, eight a foot of white stuff dumped on our world and your roof has extra hundreds of pounds of snow that it's carrying up, an extra weight that wasn't expected to be there. Well, it just holds it up anyway. It just endures and keeps going, even with that unexpected weight is there. Well, the side uh, way that this word was used in Jewish culture is the the idea of a roof. It was was a little strange, and it kind of departs from the idea of roof, but it connects, and I'll I'll show you in just a second. But in Jewish culture, they would use this word to say, we're going to keep that confidential, And we're going to kind of pass over that thing that just happened in silence. Like, if you've ever, out of the corner of your eye, you've been in the kitchen and you uh, saw your spouse, you know, stub their toe and you wanted to laugh and point and make fun of them, you thought, I'm just going to let it go. It's going to make them mad if I say something. And you just kind of passed over it in silence, okay? The idea then is that as you get married, as you get longer and deeper into a long term loving relationship, you are going to start discovering things about your spouse that you did not know beforehand. Because the thing about dating that nobody realizes until after they're not dating anymore and they're married is that when you're dating, you are on your best behavior. Everybody is kind of projecting this best version of themselves out there for the other person. You see, because for the most of us, nobody gonna marry this if we just like let all the crazy out, right? So we gotta kinda put something up to kind of shield ourselves so that somebody might actually want to marry us, right? And so when we get married though, the guard drops. You know, we don't say things as sweetly as we do as we used to. We don't do all the nice, kind things. We don't leave little notes all over the place like we, you know. And so the the, the, the guard st- goes down, and the nasty stuff kind of starts to seep out. You notice things about your significant other that you just never had a clue about. And I feel bad. I think women are on the worst end of this because guys are gross, and that's a universal truth that everybody has a, has, is, has know, knows about, right? But you don't know how gross guys are until you live with guys. Um, I didn't know how gross guys were until I got into a dorm in college. And, like, I didn't realize, like, I was a, apparently I'm an exceptionally hygienic, neat freak compared to most guys in the world. And I would, like, I just wanted to, like, seal my door with plastic to keep every bit of their grossness out. And we shared a bathroom. Nothing made me more infuriating than go in the bathroom and find some horrific mess. And it's like, who did this? Like, bring them down here. We're going to beat them with sticks because this is unacceptable. Like, this is so gross. And so you're going to get into a relationship, and all that gross stuff's just going to start happening. And you're going to find out that the person you thought you married, well, there's a little more to them than that. And so the way this verse is meant to be read is that when that extra stuff starts coming to the surface, you just kind of carry that weight that you didn't know was going to be there. Because you can do a couple things with it. One, every time you notice an unsavory, nasty thing that your spouse does, you can nag them to insanity about it. You can talk to your friends about how horrible they are, how they're not the person you thought. You can tell your mom, your sister, so that every holiday people go home looking for the worst in your spouse. Or you can just say, no, these are things I didn't know. This is just who my spouse is. I did, sure, I didn't know it, but they're the person I married. Not the person I thought I married, but I definitely, this is the person I married. And so you pass over it confidentially and you keep it to yourself. You bear under those things. That, that, and they're not that big a deal, these things. They're not game or deal changer, or deal breakers or anything like that. But they're, they're not great things, but you bear under them just the same. You accept them and you move on. Believes all things. Love believes all things. Now, I think all of these get progressively more difficult, just so you know, but um, I just think on the surface, when you just read this one, doesn't it sound like a terrible idea? Love believes all things. So I'm just supposed to believe everything my spouse tells me. No questions asked. Just, Just going to believe every little word out of their mouth as if it's truth. That sounds like Something gullible people do in an unhealthy relationship. Like, this sounds like a good way to get cheated on in such a way that everybody else knows you're being cheated on except for you. Like, this sounds like a great way to get hurt. Just believe my spouse, hands down, never ask any questions. But that's not exactly what it's saying here. The best way to understand this would be to read it. Love always believes the best. Love always believes the best. You see, the the word believes is is the same word that's used all throughout the New Testament for faith and trust. Love always trusts that they're doing right. Love always gives them the benefit of the doubt. And the way this is written, it's written like when there's a gap between your expectations and their reality, that you don't know why there's a gap yet. Like, let's say somebody's late they promised you they'd be there by 4, it's 4.30, 4.45, and you haven't heard anything out of them. So you already know there's a gap between what you expected and what their behavior is, but you don't know the reason for the gap. This implies that instead of filling that gap with assuming the worst, you are choosing to believe the best. Let's go with um, the, the, someone's late analogy. Believing the best says, yes, they're late. Yes, they said they promised they'd be here, but they've had a lot going on at work lately. I know they've been busy. Their boss has been hounding them about stuff, and the traffic was bad because it's getting close to Christmas, and, and you know what? I know they have a good reason for why, why they're late. Assuming the worst says, they're always doing this. They think their time is so much more important than mine. They're so irresponsible. Why can't they at least give me a phone call? They're so rude. Why do they do this to me all the time? There's a difference between assuming or believing the best and assuming the worst. Another example. Let's say you married somebody who constantly busts the budget, and I promise you after I read this, I'm not talking directly to my wife in this sermon. She does do this, but she does it for the best possible reason. I'm too stingy. She's generous. So I'm not talking to my wife. I thought about that. I was like, I've been on her for like the last two weeks of this series. I've been joking about that. But let's say, let's say your husband just busted the budget. You can say, okay, well, you know, he's been busy this month, had to work late. That means dinner's away from home, had to pay for food out. There's a couple times he said the guys at work wanted to do a working lunch, and they all pitched in and ordered food. There's extra money. And it was his son's birthday this month, so that meant a present. Yeah, sure, okay. He busted the budget, but you know what? He, He had good reasons. Assuming the worst says, what an irresponsible little kid. He's just like his dad. His dad was terrible with money. He's terrible with money. And now he goes around, doesn't think about anybody else, makes all these messes, and i got to come along and try to clean up the budget so we don't end up broke. There's a difference between filling in, assuming the worst, and believing the best. And what's interesting is there's actually research that shows that believing the best about your spouse is, is actually a key to long, successful relationships, they actually found, the, the researchers actually called it a a delusion, of, a delusion of love, because when you had a gap, you always thought your spouse was better than your spouse was performing. That's what, they scientifically found that people who lo- look at their spouse as better than they actually are, have more loving, lasting relationships. And so it really is important, whether that moment, there's that gap, before you know all the details, what do you jump to? Thinking the worst about your spouse? Or are actually believing the best. I mean, you can see how that attitude starts you on a trajectory, right? It, I mean, they, they come home, and you're mad already. Or you just like, you know what? I don't know the details. They're, they're a good person. I married them for a reason. We'll figure it out. Okay? They, they're not going to try to hurt me intentionally. There's a difference that these, these two angles set you on in your trajectory. All right, now, next one. Hope's all things. And this is where it gets so tough. Because now we're talking into those moments where you know why the gap is there. And the gap is there because they did something to hurt you. This is when you start talking about somebody who's got chronic sin in their life. Could be an addiction it could be an anger problem it could be greediness it could be workaholism based on the from the greediness it could be that they're just utterly selfish and they just don't think about you or the kids or anybody else first it's always about what they want in life and it's just taking its toll on you and they are hurting you with their sinful attitudes so this is a moment when they have actually done stuff that is hurtful to you and you can say i've tried believing the best i've tried giving them A generous explanation for their behavior, and yet they have proven over and over again without a shadow of a doubt that they're selfish, irresponsible, and sometimes even destructive and hurtful to me. So when they've let you down time and time again, what do you do then? Well, this says hope. You hope. Well, hope for what? You hope for their good. You hope that there is still a time when they will see their sin for what it is. They will see what they are doing to themselves and the people around them. You hope that they will finally see clearly that they are doing the wrong thing and that they will get their act together and start living in a better way that actually blesses the family. This is actually where you put hope and you, you, you never... Uh, well you, you are hoping that their future will be better than their present. This is you never giving up on them. Uh, A better way to say this is that love never stops hoping. Love never quits hoping the best for them. Now, this is regardless of the mounting evidence that the, um, the person you love is only capable of terrible choices, you still hope. And when it gets really difficult... At, at this place. Why I say this is like the, the real real hard one is because it's usually in the in this spot when someone's betrayed you or there's been feelings of betrayal or bitterness start to grow. This is when your feelings start to say, Maybe I could get out. Maybe I should leave. This is when your friends start telling you you deserve better and you need to get out of this relationship. It's it's a lost cause. He's always gonna be that way, she's always gonna be that way find something better. There's more fish in the sea than this jerk. That's what people will start to tell you. And yet this says, I don't give up hoping on the person that I married, hoping that they can walk away from their sin, that Jesus can lead them away from their sin, and that they can find something better. But uh, I, I don't mean to fill this up with fluff and just give you impossible commands to try to you know, live up to, because I, I understand that there, there are times when hoping is really hard. And um, like I said, this stuff doesn't just apply to romantic relationships. I've, I've known people who I've tried to help. I've tried to help them. People who, who maybe grew up in, in dysfunction. There's been a lot of kids around the neighborhood who've come in. And, and when they're younger, you know, you really hope that despite the way they've grown up, despite the way they've been treated, you hope with some people maybe from church showing them love and guidance and pouring some wisdom into them that maybe they can grow up and take a different path. But more often than not, they start growing up and repeating the stuff that was done to them. And it's like, why do they do that? And it, they, they knew their home life was bad, but it's almost like, yeah, that was bad, but we didn't, see, we didn't see any other way to live, so we're just gonna keep doing what we've always done. That was the only option we ever saw. And then it gets really painful to hope the best for them, to hope that they're gonna turn their life around when they're not the victims of their parents are bad parenting anymore. They're actually shooting themselves in the foot It's self-inflicted pain because they're making own deci- those same decisions over and over again. And I've had people that I've tried to show them unconditional love. I've tried to give them guidance. I've tried to pour wisdom into them. And yet, they still make ter- the same bad choices over and over again. And it just breaks your heart. And, it, and hoping the best for them gets harder and harder and harder. And this verse, though, says that love, true love, the love that you, you hope someone shows you, love never gives up. Love never stops hoping that there's a turnaround. Love never hopes that present failure is eternal failure. And as hard as this starts to become, because the next command is even harder, as hard as this becomes, that's what we instinctively know what love is, how love is, right? We know that love doesn't give up. We know that love doesn't stop no matter what. The failures are not final, And the final one, love endures all things. So Paul takes it one step further, not only saying um, that you hope for the best for that person, but that you actually keep loving them. And by loving, I don't mean feeling it, because we all know when someone's not treating you right, it's hard to feel it. You're not going to get the warm and fuzzies when someone is constantly berating you or anything like that. Um, But he's saying that you continue to show them love. You treat them in a loving fashion. You do loving things for them. Now, as we saw in week one of this series, true love is an outward-focused devotion to do the good, or uh, an outward-focused devotion for the good and well-being of another person. That's what true love is. It's not about you. It's about an outward-focused devotion to the good and well-being of another person. So when your spouse isn't kind to you, you keep trying to be kind to them. When the primary emotion they show you is anger, you still try to lovingly serve them. And I'm sure that there are all kinds of exceptions and hesitations that you can think of and want to throw at me. And you could probably, I bet there's a dozen of you that could, could stand up here and tell your story. And I'd be like, okay, you don't have to do this. No, you, don't, that you they've, they've ran over you so many times. Don't even worry about hope. Hope's gone. Don't endure. I'm sure you've got stories that would make me second guess. Even these words in the Bible but I can't come back to the beauty that this that, that stirs up in my heart when it says love endures all things. I can't, I can't ignore the fact that true love never stops loving. That true love is never based on how they have treated you. And the reason I know that is because as we've looked at through this entire series, this idea of love is, is based on how God has loved us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus died for you, not because you were awesome, not because you were great. Jesus loved you not because you were lovable. He loved you even when you were a mess. Every one of us can think back to those moments when, of life, those seasons of life, when we regret what we said, what we thought, what we did. And we think into that darkness, into those worst moments, Jesus died for that. He still loved you, even at your worst. And so, when we think of Jesus' death on the cross as the example of love, his death on the cross for a bunch of really rotten people, that is the picture of love that we start painting here in this last verse of this little section that we're looking at today. And so, it seems over the top, it seems ridiculous. But yet, it's the kind of love that God showed us first. Now, let me do say something, just because it needs to be said. If there is abuse or some sort of illegal activity, then by all means, get out and call the police. Um, You can still hope that they can change. You can still continue to love them, but that does not require that you have to live in that same house, in that abusive place. It doesn't mean you have to submit yourself to being a punching bag. We live in a, a society where too many victims think, that it's their fault that, they're the, that, they're, that they deserve to be beat up, that they deserve to be on the receiving end of that stuff. And that is not true. God's hope for this. These verses are not given to be twisted, to be shackles on a person uh, to a marriage or, or to a, a living situation that would cause them harm. So if there is something abuse or illegal, let me say absolutely, by all means, get out. You can come talk to me. We can work it out. We will help you any way that we can. But it's so this passage is not saying that there's never any way to get out of a relationship. What it is saying is the opposite of that. It's trying to convey the over the top commitment that love typically requires of us. And so when you start to think about how ridiculous it sounds, again, go back and think about the love of Christ. That while we were st- still sinners, he died for us. Despite our addiction to sin, Jesus hoped better, hoped to provide a better future for us. He endured pain. He endured suffering. He endured the ridicule of the cross in a devotion to do what was best for us. Despite all of the excuses that we come up with to bail on relationships, I cannot ignore that even the worst in us was not, a make, not enough to make Jesus stop loving us. In every relationship, there's going to be a gap. Some small, some big. Maybe it starts small when you get married and you learn how big the gap is as you're together. But how you work in the gap is going to make all the difference. How you handle the gap will determine whether you're just somebody who can fall in love or whether you're somebody who can stay in love. Because when you meet the gap with an attitude that bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You can go so much farther than a culture that says, oh, there's a gap, get out. Oh, there's a gap, just leave. Oh, there's a problem, we'll just, oh, you think there might be someone else that might make you feel better? Just go find them instead. It goes so much farther because there's always going to be a gap. You can't avoid the gap. They're always going to be there. They're in every relationship. And we are called to meet them with this true agape, godly love. So mind the gap. Because how you handle it makes all the difference. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this teaching. It's difficult because relationships are full of pain. Even good ones have their moments and days of pain. And I pray, Father, that in all things we will be people who learn to truly love the way you've loved. That on good days and bad days, for better or worse, richer or poorer, we will love that we will have the kind of love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's not the romantic, hallmark love story love. It's not the romantic comedy blockbuster type of love. It's supposed to be something more, something more meaningful, something more solid. But I do pray, though, that nobody hears this, what we've taught today and what we've looked at today, as as chains to stay in a relationship where they are being hurt, abused, taken advantage of, where their kids are being hurt, abused, and taken advantage of, that is not your will either. And just because you want to express the depth of of sacrifice that should be in love, that does not mean you want someone to be on the receiving end of of abuse. And so I pray that the people in that situation might seek to get help for the first time. I pray, Father, that... um, those who maybe who've had thoughts of is this the right thing should i leave maybe they'll have a, a deeper commitment to stay in their relationship knowing that it's not there's nothing illegal there's nothing abusive it's just a gap that we all have and that they can fight through it and that's what love requires so help us in all things to follow in the footsteps of jesus so that we might experience the joy of depth as he meant for, the joy and depth of love as he uh, meant for us to know we pray all this in his good and holy name amen